Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Y'all pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I open your word to your people. Lord, that you would anoint me with unction for the preaching of your word. That I would handle your word well. And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. God, I pray that you would teach us to handle holy things well. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, as we've talked about before, we are rapidly approaching a season of turmoil as a nation. We're coming into an election time. And as so often happens during election times, we're beginning to get more and more fake news, more and more false stories. And I will tell you that it is with great concern that I've noticed that that trend has found its way into our church. There are fake news stories that are circulating about me as a pastor. Most of them dealing with fishing trips. One particular fishing trip that happened many years ago. And without going into details, I will tell you that if you have heard that I once cast a fishing rod and then let it go, only to have to fish it out later, you may have been led astray. The sad thing is that there are much funnier stories about me acting in a foolish way. See, while I do not let go of fishing rods when I cast them often, I do have a tendency to mishandle knives. Oh, yeah, I know. I like knives. I really do. I really, really enjoy knives. I like all kinds of knives. I've made knives. I have pocket knives on me usually most of the time. But I'm also clumsy. And that's a dangerous thing. Because if you don't handle a knife well, you can hurt yourself quite badly. I can remember very early on in my relationship with Shannon, we probably weren't even dating at this point, we went to the mall in College Station and they had just opened up a knife store and I can remember she was with me, I guess, because she wanted to show that she was, she was um, you know, caring about the things that I cared about. And, and so we went into this knife store, and they had this wonderful Spyderco folding knife. And I can remember just being attracted to it in the case. I was like, oh, Spyderco. That was back when Spyderco was like a big thing. And I, and I was like, oh, I want to see that knife. And she said this to me. And these became iconic words that have echoed through our marriage. Careful, Andrew, don't cut yourself. Okay? To, to which I proceeded to take the knife out and cut myself deeply and bleed all over the floor. 
See, I had taken something that was incredibly dangerous, something very powerful, and I had treated it with contempt. I treated it like it was nothing, like it was just another tool. There's a danger to that. There is a danger when we treat powerful things with contempt. Our story this morning in the book of 1 Samuel is going to discuss what happens when the people of God, and more importantly, when the ministers of God treat powerful, holy things with contempt. Up until this point in the book of 1 Samuel, the focus has been on Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Hannah was the the woman who had been barren, who prayed for a son. We read last week how after her son came, she praised God and dedicated his service to the Lord. Well, now the book of Samuel is going to shift, and it's going to shift from Hannah to her son Samuel. But before we really begin to focus on Samuel, the author is going to do this kind of interesting montage. He's going to show us images of Samuel growing up. If this was a movie, this would be like the cool scene where they just show flashes of the, of the main character's life, right? This is where, where like you get these images of, of, of like Rocky boxing and working out in a meat locker and, and, and kind of growing stronger over time. Meanwhile, we have these other flashes of other men. As Samuel grows and gets larger and stronger and wiser, the men that he is supposed to be working for, the people that are the high priests, the sons of Eli, are doing things a bit differently. Verse 12 of chapter 2 opens this passage in a, in a very harsh way. They pull no punches. We read, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men who did not know the Lord. That's harsh wording. In Hebrew, the word that is used actually means the sons of Belial. Belial's a demon. Okay? So what the author is saying is the sons of Eli, or I'm sorry, What he's saying is the sons of Eli were the sons of a demon and they didn't know the Lord. At this time in Israel, that term meant someone who led to destruction, someone who was foolish, someone who was broken. And so at the time of Samuel's birth and training, the people of God are being led by manifestly unqualified men, men who are so dissolute and broken that they don't even know the God that they say that they serve. We need to understand this, guys. Character is incredibly important in the leaders of God's people. By now, it should be clear to us that character is important in the leaders of God's people. How many times... Do we have to be shown what happens to churches when their leaders fail, 
When pastors are unfaithful or steal from the flock or abuse their positions, it doesn't just affect them and it doesn't just affect their families. It affects the entirety of God's people. It raises all of God's people up to rebuke. The character of God's ministers is critical. Ministers who don't know the Lord can't minister well because they don't know who they're serving. And yet sometimes, more often than we would want to admit, the men that fill our pulpits aren't saved, don't know Christ. Oh, they're charismatic and they're smart and they're handsome, but being smart and charismatic and handsome isn't enough. It's actually not even necessary, as you can see. <laughs> Those are not the things that are currency in God's kingdom. No. Knowledge of God and faithfulness to Him are the things that allow someone to serve God. I am thankful at this church that the men that have been raised up as deacons are good and godly men. Like, I want you to know that, guys. We, we may not have a new building. <laughs> we may not have a water fountain that works all the time. But one thing I can say about this church is that the men that serve beside me as deacons are good and godly men. Character matters. And when the men that are serving God have no character, when they don't know the Lord, the nation falls into ruin. And we begin to see what that looks like in verse 13. How the selfish and callous priests are abusing and stealing from the people. We read in verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought out, the priest would take for himself. Now, I know that for us, we look at this and very often... The response is, huh? Like, as I read this the first couple of times, I'm like, I'm not really sure what's going on. I had to do some pretty extensive study to figure out what it is they were actually doing wrong. So here's the deal. In ancient Israel, God set up a sacrificial system. And within that sacrificial system there was a mechanism to support the house of God. Sometimes, as God's people, we can forget that the tithes and the offerings that the people are bringing in go to support the church. They go to support the temple. It's always been like that. Okay? So when the priests are living off the sacrifice, that's not an abuse. That's the way it was designed. Okay, so the Levites don't have jobs. 
right? They don't have fields. They're not, given they're not given places where they can make money or where they can support themselves. Their job is to support the worship of God. They're scattered throughout all of Israel. Their job is to kind of keep Israel centered, right? To keep Israel on the right track, to remind them of the law, to serve before God in the temple. And so the tithes that everybody gathers together is used to support the priests in the temple. So that's not bad. That's the way it was designed. The problem is these two jokers aren't following the rules. There's a very clearly defined set of offerings that are supposed to go to the priests. You read through Leviticus, like, why is Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy so long? Because the code is set up in there. A certain amount of the bread is supposed to go to them. A certain amount of the oil is supposed to go to them. A certain amount of the meat is supposed to go to them. Certain cuts in certain places from certain sacrifices. And it's very clearly laid out. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that the high priest and his sons are sending a servant around with like a trident. And he goes over to these big pots where the animals that have been sacrificed are being boiled up, right? So they would sacrifice the animal, they would boil the animal, and then all of the people that brought the sacrifice would get to eat it, okay? Most of the sacrifice isn't burned up. Most of the sacrifice actually goes to the people that brought it. It's a way of enshrining celebration and community, okay? And what this guy's doing is he's going over to the pot and he's looking in there. He's like, I want that one and that one. And he's going in there and he's picking out all the good stuff and pulling it out and leaving whatever's left to the family. He is using, they're using their role as high priest to steal from the people. To take away the food that's supposed to be there for their consumption. These men are supposed to offer sacrifices to the Lord and instead they're treating the Lord's house and the Lord's table like it's a buffet line at the Golden Corral. But it's not just that either. See, they weren't content to steal from the people. They also had the goal to steal from God. They weren't just going over and picking out the meat that they wanted out of the kettles. They didn't want boiled meat. We read, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come over and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now, for those of you who don't like corned beef, you may understand this, right? Boiled meat ain't great. And you can tell that maybe the priests had gotten a little tired of the portion that God had given them. They didn't want boiled brisket, which is basically what they were getting. They call it the breast of the animal, which is the brisket. They would take it and they would boil it, and that's what the priests would get. They didn't want that. They wanted some real brisket. They wanted some ribs. They wanted some, some steak. I had some steak on Friday night with my son. It was delightful. That's what they wanted. They wanted a T-bone or a New York strip. So they would go out and they would send their servant out to the people that were sacrificing and they would say, give us the T-bone. That's not for you. 
Go ahead and give us the, the, the fat, the marbled meat, the good and tender meat, the tenderloin. That's problematic because that meat, the fat of the animal was supposed to be burned on the altar. And once the fat was burned away, then they could get and everybody could eat their food. But they weren't content with that. We see in the pattern here, these are men who have been set aside for service in the temple that were not content with what God had given them. So they used their position to abuse God's flock, to enrich themselves. We're told later on that, that Eli had grown fat on the sacrifices that God had set aside for, for his people. Now, all this may seem kind of like a trivial matter, right? Like, who actually cares? In a, in a time and a place when, when worship is whatever we kind of make it out to be and, and, and we're kind of past these worship wars. We're, we're all, so often we're just happy you're here. We have a hard time understanding why this is that big of a deal, but you need to understand that the system that was built was built for a specific reason. The book of Hebrews tells us that everything in the law Everything in the tabernacle paints a picture of a heavenly reality. All of this stuff is symbolic and very clearly set up in a line. And it's so important that God has set aside a whole tribe of Israel to manage this whole process. And these men that were supposed to know, these men weren't doing their job because they didn't care. Because they didn't know God. But it gets even worse than that. Later on in verse 22, we read about how these men weren't just stealing the sacrifices from the people and weren't just stealing the sacrifices from God. They were abusing the children of God. Read in verse in verse 22, they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There's some controversy over this about what exactly those women were, what exactly they were supposed to be doing. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is there were women that were serving in the temple. They couldn't go everywhere in the temple. They didn't have all the roles in the temple. They weren't the high priests, but they were the people that helped prepare the sacrifice and clean the utensils. They were the ones that helped with other things that were around there, water resupply, food preparation, guiding and assisting women worshipers. Some of these women were volunteers. Some of them were full-time employed there. Many of them would have been Nazarites like Samuel, people that had taken a vow to serve God. Regardless of what these women were doing, one thing was clear. They were holy before God. To be in the temple precinct, to be in the tent of meeting, they were supposed to be holy. Set aside for the service of God. And these two men were treating God's daughters like their own personal, private harem. They were abusing the women of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, there can be nothing worse than a pastor or a minister who abuses the women of the church. And yet we see it happen. 
over and over and over again. What an abuse of trust. What a disgrace. And yet these men are taking the precious, holy things of God and treating them with contempt. Oh, brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to treat the holy things of God with contempt. We must be careful not to treat that which is separate and holy and let's be honest, a little dangerous with contempt to play around with those things that we don't fully understand. The sons of Eli are unbelievers who have been elevated through their family connections to a place of critical importance. And I want to tell you this, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that heredity is a terrible way to find servants of God. It's, it's interesting. God sets up these hereditary systems, and yet none of them end up creating good and godly leaders down the road. We read as soon as, you know, Moses is probably the best example of a prophet and a deliverer in the history of Israel. You know what his descendants do? The sons and grandsons of Moses? No sooner do they enter the land, they set up a pagan shrine and begin to lead the people astray. Over and over and over again, we see that the children of godly men wander off and go astray. I knew a wise man who once told me, God has no grandchildren. He has children or he has nothing. He has children or he has nothing. I would ask you today, are you one of God's children? Do you know him? Have you been adopted by him? Or are you here today because your mom and dad brought you? Or because a long time ago, your grandma took you to church. Are you resting on the faith of someone else? Thinking that you're going to become faithful by osmosis. Oh, brothers and sisters. I want to encourage you this morning. If you have not made a profession of faith in Christ, you have to make a profession of faith in Christ. It's not enough for your family to have done so. So we see this family that has fallen into idolatry and unfaithfulness. And it looks terrible, and it's meant to. Because it is meant to highlight Eli, a man who couldn't be more different than the sons, I'm sorry, Samuel, a man who couldn't be more different than the sons of Eli. Woven through this passage is another family, one that might not even been perfect, right? But one who at least honored God. As Phineas and Hophni slide ever deeper into the abyss, there's someone else that God is preparing to take the reins of Israel. And he's sleeping just outside 
We read in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. That his, and his mother used to make for him a little robe to take to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked for of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Again, we read later on of the boy Samuel continued to grow both in the stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. See, while the sons of Eli are ignoring God, abusing God's people, stealing the sacrifices, abusing the women in the temple, you have this other image of a little boy wearing a, a little linen ephod. An ephod is like a, like a shirtless tunic. He's... There's nothing grand about him. He's not even of the right family to be able to be a priest. He's just there to be a helper. He's like a little guy. Like when we have our children come up on stage or when we have our kids read. Just a little person serving before a mighty God in an amazing house of worship filled with gold and implements and grandeur. Just a little guy in a simple Tunic, serving a mighty God. Do you see the starkness of the picture there? The humility of this little boy. And the brokenness of these powerful men. And yet as they are falling ever deeper into debauchery and sin and brokenness, we see this guy year after a year, every year, his mom makes him a new robe, brings it up to him during the time of sacrifice, and he puts it on and he wears it proudly for the rest of the year. The robe of Samuel is actually going to be a motif that follows throughout the book of 1 Samuel. It's a sign of his authority and his position, of his calling out by God. And yet at this point, it's just a, a simple garment worn by a simple kid, trying to serve God in the midst of a broken place. See, there's more going on here than just wardrobe. This is a, a working out of the theme of the great reversal. This theme that we've talked about over and over again in the Bible from the beginning to the very end where the high people, the great people, the powerful people, the proud people are all broken by God. And the poor people, and the humble people, and the powerless people, and the weak people, and the broken people are elevated by Him and used Him in amazing, and miraculous ways. While the sons of Eli strut around clothed in the uniform of their position in jeweled ephods and mighty turbans, Samuel serves quietly and humbly and faithfully. While they carouse and steal and debouch themselves, the parents of Samuel come to the temple faithfully to sacrifice. While Eli condemns his son as wastrels and squanderers, he blesses the son 
the family of Samuel and Hannah and this barren woman who begged for just one son is now lavished with many children. I just want to stop there for a minute and remind you of something we talked about last week. So much of this part of the book of Samuel is about sacrifice and worship. And last week we said there is no worship without sacrifice. But the corollary is that the blessings that God pours out on those who sacrifice are beyond comprehension. One pastor said it this way, you cannot outgive God. This is something that we have seen over and over and over again. It's something that we have to be reminded of over and over and over again. There are countless people in this church that will tell you about the ways that God has blessed them when they have been faithful to Him in giving. It is our instinct to hold on to what we have. Especially when when, uh, interest rates are up and inflation rates are at 7%. But but I'm going to tell you this. God's blessing rate will outperform the market every day of every year for eternity. You, the single best investment you can make is in the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says, do not store up your treasures on earth where rust and moths, and if he knew what inflation was, he would have said inflation, property taxes, an income tax, steal and waste away. Oh, brothers and sisters, give to God out of the fullness of the first fruits of the things that he's given you as an act of worship, and you will be blessed. In this case, with Hannah, she gave up one child to the service of the Lord, and he gave back to her sevenfold. A super abundance. Because that's how God works. He takes a little bit And he turns it into a lot. That's the message, guys. That God takes the small and does amazing things with them. He takes the little bit that you give, the little bit that you serve. And he multiplies it and transforms it and changes the world with it. God is glorifying himself by setting up a great reversal A humble child is going to be used to supplant the great and powerful line of the priests of Eli. And we see this same cycle played out over and over again in this book and later on. I want you to think about this just for a second. Samuel is a child growing up in the court of corrupt priests and he will anoint a king who will grow up in the court of a corrupt king. Samuel will save his people 
and revitalize worship. David will save his people and revitalize the monarchy. They are types of each other, but both of them are types of the king that will come. This last phrase that he says in here, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Does that sound familiar? It comes from the Gospels. And it refers to Jesus. It's a connection. Samuel and David are there to paint pictures of Christ. The small child born to a single mother in a poor family, in a backwater of Israel that will go on to redeem all mankind. Because that's the kind of God we serve. One who humbles the rich and elevates the poor. And so we have to be very, very careful We have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, that if we are successful, that we will be on our guard against pride and self-sufficiency. See, God blesses faithfulness, but we cannot allow the blessings of God to corrupt us or lead us astray or take us away from the path that He's given us. If God has blessed you with wealth or skill or time, thank Him for it. And use it for his kingdom. Do not become complacent. And look at all you have and say, Lord, Lord, look at my barns. Look how full they are. You fool. It will be desired of you tonight. But in the same token, if you are broken and if you are humble... If you are sick and if you are needy, you have to be on your guard against despair, against the idea that your usefulness is over, that somehow God can't use you. Somehow you're too broken to be used by Him. Because remember, throughout the Bible, He uses the broken things of the world to humble the rich things of the world. He uses that which is small and humble for glorious purposes. Well, finally, this story comes to its climax as Eli and his family are confronted with the bitter results of all their sin. Late in his life, Eli finally gets fed up with his sons. They've been doing all of this stuff for years and years and years, and like a doting parent who finally gets tired of his kids being hauled off to jail over and over again, he pulls them aside and says, hey, you knuckleheads need to stop. Do you not understand what you're doing here? Do you not realize who you're defrauding and who you're stealing from? God doesn't play. You are going to go to destruction. But by now we read... It is too late. They've hardened themselves. They're beyond His wisdom. So God does what He always does to harden stiff-necked people. He sends a prophet. Verse 27, we read that God sends a man of God who speaks to 
Eli and said, did I, not, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. He's reminding them of everything that he has been given. And as we have said so often in the great words of the theologian Spider-Man, to that to whom great things have been given, great things are required. To whom much is given, much will be required. He's reminding them of this in the same way that he reminds Israel of the blessings that he's given them right before he speaks judgment and justice. And in case Eli is confused, the man of God makes things very clear. It's not just Eli's sons who have been knuckleheads and run amok. Eli, the priest who should have known better, chose his sons over his duty to God. His sons may be sleeping with the women in the church and his sons may be the ones that are stealing from the offering plate and his sons might be the ones that are misappropriating sacrifices but Eli is the one who has become fat off the whole system. Eli is the one who has allowed worship in Israel to degenerate and fall apart. So what does he say? Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And in case we're confused, that does not mean he will be blessed with perpetual youth. It means that he will see his young men wasted by war and death. In distress you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall, cut off, whom I'm, whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And that this shall come to pass upon your house, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign, to, this shall be a sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. They're not going to grow old, they're going to die young, and the judgment will not end there because Eli will be forced to watch while his sons die and his family is slaughtered by the sword. And he reveals to Eli that he will be play, replaced by another, more faithful line of priests. And that's exactly what happens. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, we see that. We see the descendants of Eli, some of them good men, killed. First by Saul some by others, and ultimately his line of priests is going to be supplanted by Solomon, who puts a different guy in his place. This is a hard judgment. This is a hard judgment that's being levied on this man. But God doesn't play. 
Eli and his line have treated the holy things of God with contempt for generations, and now they will lose their position, their livelihood, and their future. This happens so that God's people will understand the danger in treating holy things with contempt. It is an object lesson. Understand this. This book is being written to the Jews that are in exile in Babylon. So they will understand why they're there. Over and over again, the pattern stands. If you mess around with the things that are holy, if you show contempt to God, if you choose things other than God, don't be surprised when bad things happen. The author of Samuel wants us to understand that it is dangerous to treat the holy things of God with contempt. And here's where the danger for us is. We read a passage like this, and we don't really have the categories to understand how this applies to us. For many of us, when we think about holy things and holy places, we think about the church. Right? Most of us, if we were to say, well, what's a holy place? We'd say, well, the church, the sanctuary of the church is a holy place. Right? We're a more traditional church. We have a sanctuary. We don't have like a, a gym that we also use as a worship facility that we also use for potlucks. Like, this is our, our sanctuary. We call it that. When we come into this place, we feel the sense of the divine here. So this is a, a holy place. So we know like, we're not supposed to bring unholy things into a holy place. We're, we're not going to smoke cigarettes inside the church. We're not going to bring lewd things in here. We're not going to do inappropriate things inside the church. I can remember the church that I grew up in was this little Episcopal church. And I can remember the the feeling of betrayal that I felt when they sold the building to move out of town and they sold the facility to the, to the school district. And the school district used it as, a, as an event facility. And I can remember there was this scandal in the town when, when somebody in the school district had used the facility to host a lingerie shower for somebody's wedding. Yeah, right? Like we all kind of feel that. Even though there's, it's, like not a, like it's not a church anymore, like, that ain't right. Or when they take a church, like, you see this down in, down in Southtown, when they take a church and they turn it into, like, a brewery, and you're like, ugh, that just doesn't, ugh, I, don't, I don't feel right. We're used to thinking about holy places. We're used to thinking about holy, holy things like the Bible, right? Like, we don't put the Bible on the floor. We don't, want to put our, we don't use the Bible as a coaster for our drinks, we don't want the Bible to get all tattered up. If we get one that's kind of ratty, we want to take care of it. But I need you to understand this, guys. We are holy things. In the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. In the New Covenant, God dwells in his people. We're the holy place. If we're not in this building, it's just a building. Wherever two or three are gathered together, that's where God is. When we come together for dinner as a Sunday school class, church is there. 
When you go out to, to the Indian restaurant with a couple people from Sunday school, church is there. When, when we go under the bridge and serve the homeless, church is there. Church is wherever we are. And that's fantastic, right? Hallelujah, praise God. But I want you to think about this. That means that when you get together and you start gossiping, you're gossiping in the Lord's house. When, when, when you get together and you're ugly to each other, you're being ugly to each other in the Lord's house. But see, it's worse than that, guys, and more glorious than that. Paul tells us, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, it's not just when two or three people get together that God is present with them. God is present inside of us all the time. Hophnius and, Hophni and Phinehas are, are brutally punished because they have done unholy things in the temple of God with the sacrifices of God. And brothers and sisters, each of you is a priest before God. Each of you is called to sacrifice yourselves on the altar every single day. And so when you take that which is holy and you treat it with contempt, you are doing the same things. That's why Peter says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? So when you commit sexual immorality, you are uniting the body of Christ with a prostitute. That's hard words. He's not playing around. When we hate our brothers, we are degrading and destroying part of God's temple. When we focus on our own desires and our own preferences, we are treating the sacrifice of praise as a buffet for our own enjoyment. We are committing the sins of the sons of Eli. So I beg you this morning, do not handle holy things with contempt. Every minute of every day for the rest of your life, you need to realize you are consecrated. You are holy ground. You are the temple of the living God. That means you can go into His presence and offer the sacrifice of your life to Him and have community and fellowship with the God of the universe, with Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And that is amazing. But it comes with deep responsibility. Each of you is a priest before God. So handle the holy things with wisdom and with care. For some of you, this makes no sense to you. Like, why is this guy yelling at me? Not yelling. I'm speaking strongly. You don't understand what I'm talking about because you don't have a relationship with Christ. You don't know what it means to have the Holy Spirit live inside of you. But I need you to know this. 
God wants a relationship with you today. This God who took the humble things of the world to crush the strong, this God who took the weak and transformed it can transform you. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you think you've fallen, God still has a plan for you. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to have some folks come up here to the front. And I want to invite you. If you have never made a decision to follow Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you've never sat down and thought about the sin in your life and, and confessed it to God, I want to encourage you to come forward. We've got some deacons up here and some, some godly people in the church that will pray for you and explain to you how you can have a relationship with Him today, how you can become a temple of the Holy Spirit, how you can have a relationship with the living God. But it doesn't just end there. See, we are here together as a community of believers. And so if you are here this morning and you're broken and you just need prayer, I want to encourage you to come forward so that we can pray for you, so we can lift you up. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to come forward so we can talk to you about baptism. If you don't have a church home, we want to be your church home. We ain't perfect, but we do know who our Savior is, and we want to tell you about Him.